Jesus is coming. Amen? And we look forward to His return. And we live for that purpose, not in fear of what might be, but in expectation of what will be. And I'm excited about that. I truly am. Time marches on to a singular end, a conclusion. And we are in that direction. We are now three and a half years into the tribulation. Oh, not presently. Not in this world. Not yet, but vicariously in our study. We're three and a half years in. We have covered chapter 6. I was thinking about what Paul wrote to that troubled church in hard times at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he wrote, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, which in and of itself is a wonderful thought, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Paul says, have you seen that? And the answer will be no. And he says the tribulation has not come. Besides, the tribulation is not for you. Wrath is not for you, not for me. And so in essence, when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, what he was saying is you may be having tribulation, but you are not in the tribulation. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I think Believers in Jesus Christ need to be reminded of that, and often we may have tribulations. We may go through, will go through hard times. We will face great difficulties, but that is not the tribulation. The tribulation is a seemingly hopeless time, a nearly hopeless time, although as we're about to see, people still will be saved. But this is not a hopeless time. This is the church age. This is the age of grace. These are the days of His favor. We're still in that. And so while life may get tough, you're not in the tribulation. Take courage. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And again, as Paul wrote, the tribulation itself won't get underway until the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed. He's going to come riding in on a white horse, bearing a bow, that false covenant of peace, wearing a leafy temporary crown, and preceding the red horse rider of war, and the black horse rider of famine, the pale horse riders of death and Hades, Revelation 6 truly brings us some disturbing imagery. Prior to chapter 6, the imagery has been stunning, it's been amazing, it's been engaging, but it hasn't been disturbing. You get into chapter 6 and suddenly we come to the first disturbing imagery that will result in a devastating reality. As we said last week, a summons for Israel and a sentence 
for the world? The tribulation. Jesus even divided it as we've been looking at it three and a half years and three and a half years for a total of seven. In the first three and a half years, the tribulation, Jesus says, they will deliver you into tribulation. Talking to Jewish people, they will deliver you into tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, Matthew 24, verse 9. But then Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 24, verse 21, then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Tribulation, the first three and a half years. Great tribulation, the last three and a half years. Two halves of the seven year whole. The tribulation, the wrath of the Lamb. The great tribulation, the wrath of God. And as we talked about last week, both would be 42 months and 42 months, or 1,260 days and 1,260 days, or a time times and half a time, and a time times and half a time. Seven years total. Now, a few of you walked out of here last week just going, Ow! We, we want to expand our understanding, but for a few brains, maybe it was a little expansive. So we did something this last week, and you can pick this up. These are There's another little handout for you. You can pick up and take home. It's not notes from this morning's teaching, but notes from last week and a couple other things. In fact, on here we have the travel guide for unpacking the book of Revelation, which takes you through an outline of Revelation 1 through 22. That's on the front page. The shifting scenes in the book of Revelation that we talked about last week, showing where you are in Revelation, on earth or in heaven, the back and forth, that's on this page. We put on here biblical parallels, the seven kingdom parallels in Matthew 13 to the seven letters of, to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. And then the Olivet Discourse. And the first three and a half years of the tribulation, this we covered Wednesday night. By the way, if you were not here Wednesday, we did a prophecy update. Which, as I shared Wednesday, is pretty much the whole book of Revelation. And don't ask me to do a prophecy update while we're in this book, because we are doing a prophecy update every single Sunday and Wednesday. That's what this is. But we talk specifically about what I think is the number one sign that we are at the end of the last days, that we've seen over the last year. We talked about that, we discussed some other things, and we paralleled or compared Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 going into 7 to see how what Jesus said in Matthew 24 lays out chronologically exactly what He reveals to John in Revelation chapter 6. Well, that breakdown is on here as well. And then finally, we also added calculating the seven-year tribulation, looking at Daniel 9, 24-27, how we come up with, how we understand that this tribulation is seven years. So there are stacks of these on the back counter and right up here on the stage. And if you'd like one of these, you can take it, tuck it in your Bible, and maybe that'll help. Our, our goal is not to give people headaches. Our goal is to learn and study and have revelation together. Now, I I said something a moment ago, and I don't know if you caught it. But I said that Revelation chapter 6 brings to us the first disturbing imagery that we have in the book. Which kind of begs the question, is it imagery or is it reality? And that's the big debate that people have about the book of Revelation. What is imagery? What is reality? There are those who would say the whole thing is just one big metaphor for God wins. 
And they close the book at that. And I say, that's not good enough. God didn't give us 22 chapters of Revelation for us just to say, God wins. There's a reason it's all here, and we're called into it to study and to learn it. But, but what is imagery, and what is reality? And I've told you before, John tells us when it's imagery. John is very descriptive. He will let you know when it's a sign, or a symbol, or where there's symbology involved when he's painting a picture... Otherwise, just take it at face value. That's the easiest and best way to study through Revelation. And so you might read chapter 6 and ask the question, so will there actually be white, red, black, and pale horse riders? Or are those just pictures or images? Are they just similes of catastrophes? The red horse rider. Well, that's war. Okay, so there's not really a red horse rider. And yet, I'm going to give you an opinion here. John gives no indication that this is symbolic. I mean, look over it. Look at chapter 6. He does not give an implication that the riders are anything other than someone he sees. And I won't go back over it to read it, but you can do that yourselves. What I am saying here is I believe while war and famine and death ensues, I absolutely believe personally that John is witnessing the dispatch of demonic spirits. The spirit of Antichrist. spirit of war. A spirit of famine. A spirit of death and of Hades. He begins with the spirit of Antichrist when he talks about that white horse rider. Rick, I thought we were in chapter 7. We are, almost. Just hang on. But the spirit of Antichrist comes riding out first. That rider on the white horse, John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And listen, he says, of which you heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Well, how can the spirit of Antichrist have been in the world in the first century, and now, or at least now in the tribulation? Well, I'll explain that, and I'll tell you how when we get to Revelation 13. So you've got to come back and get the answer to that question. But either way, whether we're talking about imagery, a picture of war, famine, death, or we're talking about reality, spirits of these things, whether it's symbolic or demonic, the physical impact on the earth will be very real, will be absolutely physically devastating. The world's going to know. But what's amazing to me is in response to these writers coming into the world, The global elite under the deception of Antichrist is going to lay the blame for the wars and the famines and the death at the feet of all those who have turned to Jesus. They'll blame the Christians, as it were, the believers at that time, those who come to faith in the first three and a half years. Understand, the Bible, to me, is very clear that the church is not here. The church was caught up prior to the beginning of the revelation, or the the tribulation. The church is caught up. But these are believers in the first three and a half years, as we will see unequivocally in chapter 7, multiplied millions who get saved at that time. And this morning we're going to see why. But all this devastation from war and famine and pestilence, these things going on on the planet in the first three and a half years, Antichrist, 
And those who follow him will start to say, it's those believers. We thought we were rid of them. And now people are believing again. They're the problem. And people will begin to be killed, martyred, once again, simply for saying, I believe in Jesus. The blame will be laid on them. It is our human tendency to look for someone to blame. Isn't that the first thing you see when there's a problem in the news? Isn't that the first debate? Whose fault is it? Who did this? We've got to find out. We need a special counsel. Let's figure out what's going on. Because we've got to blame someone for the ills of this world. And in this case, in those first three and a half years, it will be believers in Jesus. Interesting. The human tendency is to blame others for the fallout of our own sin. And I want you to get this. Sin always comes with a price. Would anyone deny that? Sin comes with a price. I'm not even talking about the judgment of God. I'm talking about sin itself. When you sin, there is a price that comes with the sin. And the five riders, they come galloping in, bringing the consequence of the sin of humanity. That that's what's going on. The human world is just getting what it asks for. This is the fallout of what people wanted a global world order. A one world government. Everybody all together. And the fallout will be huge. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Now again, not even discussing God the Father, Christ the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Simply by sinning, your own sin will condemn you. Your own sin has repercussions. Your own sin will find you out. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But after the riders and the natural repercussions of war, famine, and death, the Lamb becomes furious. And judgment then ensues. Why? Because as I said... Instead of repenting, the world rebels all the more and begins this campaign of genocide against believers at that time. So Jesus breaks the sixth seal. And I want to start there, Revelation 6.12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come. And who is able to stand? And it's remarkable that the entire world at this time recognizes what's going on. You don't need to be a believer in the first three and a half years of tribulation to know that the wrath of the Lamb is taking place. The world will know. And all the sycophantic inhabitants of the Antichrist and his leadership will finally understand, will finally see and even declare, this is the wrath of the Lamb. Now, 
If you were on earth at that time, I pray none of you will be. By faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about being in the tribulation. But but just for the sake of argument, for the sake of our study, if you were on earth at that time when all this began to break loose, wouldn't you want to know that you were safe? And that you were secure? That you were purchased and protected? I think that's going to be part of the reason why so many people begin to come to believe in Jesus who didn't before, who missed the catching up who were left behind truly, that they will see what's going on and and realize their vulnerability eternally and begin to be saved, to give their lives to Jesus, to repent. There will be many. Wouldn't you want to know? Don't you want to know when things are falling apart that there is a place that you are secure? A place that you can hide, somewhere you can go, or at least a knowledge that you're covered You see, while Jesus systematically breaks the seals on the scroll of chapter 5, remember he takes the scroll from the Father, seven seals on the scroll, and he begins to break them. And with each breaking of each seal, worse comes. But as Jesus begins to break these seals, loosing the earth from its mortgage and foreclosure, there's one seal that remains unbroken in tribulation. One seal unbroken in tribulation. And so we open Revelation chapter 7, the first parenthetical section of the book. So you can put parentheses around it because what's taking place here in chapter 7, I believe are concurrent with the descriptions of what takes place in chapter 6. So it's an overlay, if you will, like like an old transparency. Chapter 7, overlaying chapter Six, but preceding chapter eight, which is a great place for seven to be after six, but before eight. Right? I, I learned that actually from Mark Perkins. I volunteered in his classroom years ago, and I did the little math problems for the kids, and I'm like, oh, that's how that works. So, chapter seven, verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Ever tried to hold back wind? It's not easy to do. So that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now pause for a moment. Four angels. By the way, we just finished chapter 6 and he says, The great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The people on earth cry out. Well, four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. Of course, there are those who say, Well, see, there aren't four corners of the world. So clearly scripture is inaccurate. The world's not flat. Four corners. It's a euphemism. Come on. You know one of the things I appreciate about the Scriptures? God does ascribe some modicum of intelligence to us as readers. That we can use our heads and understand what's being said. Four angels, north, south, east, west. Four angels on all four sides of the globe, if you will. And so these four angels are around and... They're holding back the four winds. They're not just standing there trying to hold wind like maybe you did as a child. They're holding back something that the four winds indicate. How can we know? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we can understand the four winds and what it means. For one thing, recognizing that God has control over all wind. 
Over the four winds, Jesus has authority. How do you know? Well, remember when Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the little fishing boat? Sound asleep as the boat was rocking on the waves and the storm and the winds. And I, for, for one thing, in that story, I love the fact that Jesus is able to rest in the storms. I'm not so good at that. When my life is stormy and rocking, I am wide awake and I'm paddling and I'm trying to put up the sail or take down the sail or bail out the water. I'm doing everything I can to fix the situation and he's snoozing. Why? Because he's got it. He has control. And that's what the apostles, the the disciples would learn that day. But the winds were whipping up the storm. Jesus is there in the stern. They wake him up. Jesus, don't you care that we're dying here? Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What's interesting about chapter 7, verse 1, is it's a calm not after the storm, but it is the calm before the storm. There's going to be another one where there is utter silence in heaven before the second half of the tribulation completely breaks loose. But at this point, there's a pause, there's a calm. There's a holding back before the storm. Jesus commands the winds, and the four winds, get this, the four winds biblically speak of divine judgment. They're holding back, not blowing breezes, not spring zephyrs. They're holding back divine judgment by the authority, by the command of Jesus, hold back The winds, the four winds. How do we know it's divine judgment? Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of the heaven and will scatter them to all these winds and there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will not go. I'm bringing judgment. The four winds. Ezekiel 37, verse 9. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath... Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. Divine judgment. Now the Jeremiah verse is judgment against. The the Ezekiel verse is judgment for. That is, the one is a judgment against Elam, the four winds. The Ezekiel verse is a judgment for Israel. Breathe the four winds and bring them to life. But in either case, this is the work of God that is blowing in. But before this divine judgment happens in chapter 7, something else has to take place. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel rising or ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Pause for just a moment. Before all heaven breaks loose on the earth, before this massive judgment begins to come down, God moves to secure a certain group of servants. And that word bond servants, it is the lowest form of servant. It's doulos in the Greek. It's that 
Honestly, it's that word to which we all aspire. To be the lowest servant in the kingdom. Because in Jesus' eyes, that's to be in the highest place of honor. And so He wants to seal these bondservants to protect them. But who are they? Who are the 144,000? Well, (laughs) the cults love to claim it. It's us! We're the 144,000! The Jehovah's Witnesses ran out of room in heaven decades ago by claiming the 144,000. The Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, taught that they were the 144,000. Seventh-day Adventism today has over 20 million members. So I'm not sure about 144,001 and on. But that was what she taught. Mormon doctrine teaches that the 144,000 are men who attained to their perfection, thus became gods. Because that's what Mormonism teaches, that you ultimately will attain that perfection. When you do, you become a god and you get your own planet and you rule in your own little mini cosmos. (laughs) 144,000 Mormon gods. 144,000 could also be the number of Mormon recipes for Jell-O. I'm not sure. It's it's one of the two. (laughs) But even in certain mainline Protestant churches, get this, Christian churches, it is held that the 144,000 are symbolic of the church. You know what that's based on? The lie of replacement theology. Let me say that again clearly. The lie of replacement theology. The belief, that is, that the church replaces Israel. Israel had their chance. The Jewish people had opportunity to believe in God and follow God, the chosen people, by His choice, but they blew it. So God changed His mind and they're out. And it is one of the greatest lies propagated on the church in the last 2,000 years. It is not biblical, my friends. And you may have been raised in a tradition. I was that at least silently believed and taught replacement theology. That the church replaces Israel. It's not biblical. I can go over and over, passage after passage after passage and talk about it. Let me just show you one. Romans chapter 11. Would you turn back there just for a moment? Romans 11. Look at verse 1. Paul writing, and by the way, if you ever want to really study this out, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read it and tell me what you think about God's choice of Israel after you do that. Romans chapter 11, however, says in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too, Paul writes, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Is that clear? Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. Ever feel like that? Like you're the last man, the last woman standing. Nobody understands me. Nobody gets me. I'm all alone in this. I think I'll eat some worms. Well, Elijah, I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Verse 4. 
But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. Skip down to verse 11. We could read the rest, but let me just go down there. I say then, they, referring to Israel, did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Skip down to verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, which, by the way, is a good definition of replacement theologians, those who are wise in their own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How is it possible that all Israel will be saved? Now some have gone to the other extreme and said, if a Jew, if someone is a Jew, they will be saved. Because they're a Jew. Simply by being born Jewish, you have salvation. I disagree. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So the only way a Jewish person is going to be saved is through Jesus. Same as you, same as me. Our our salvation is in and through Jesus Christ, period. But all Israel, Paul writes, is going to be saved. How is that possible? We'll talk about that at a later date. All Israel will be saved, and and I will hopefully will show you how. But Paul is absolutely clear. We don't have to guess. Go ahead and go back to Revelation 7. We don't have to guess the identity of the 144,000. In fact, their identification is as absolutely certain as their quantification. Verse 4 again. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And just in case somebody reads that verse and says, what does that mean? He continues, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. And from the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And from the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon or Shimon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Did you get it? 144,000 Jews. It's obvious, it's unquestionable. No, it is not a metaphor or a simile for something else. John looks and he sees and he hears that the 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000, 12 times 12, are sealed. These are sealed Jewish bondservants. And their identity is unquestionable. And God promised something 2,700 years before this. Well, no, 700 years before it was written. 2,700 years ago, God promised He was going to seal a group of Jewish bondservants. Did you know that? 
You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 19. Listen to this. He says, I will set a sign among them. The word sign in the Hebrew is either a miracle or a token. Either I'm going to do something miraculous among them, or I'm going to set something, a token, a seal if you will, on them. And I will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish and Put and Lud and Meshach and Tubal and Yavin to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my name nor seen my glory and they will declare my glory among the nations. I'm going to set a sign on them, send them out and they're going to take the gospel to the nations. In fact, right there we learn the function of the 144,000 Jews. They are 144,000 Jewish evangelists. We know this from Isaiah, we also know this from what we will read Wednesday night in the second half of chapter 7. We see the result of the sealed 144,000 and their taking of the gospel. By the way, which nation sent out the most missionaries in 2017? The answer actually, and I had heard South Korea. The answer actually is still America. In terms of overall numbers, now in terms of percentage to the size of the country, South Korea blows us away. But America still sent out the most, followed by South Korea, then followed by, get this, China. And then followed by India. South Korea, China, And India are nibbling on the heels of America in terms of the number of missionaries sent out with the word of the gospel. But this was the striking reality or statistic to me. What country of all the nations in the world received the most missionaries? And it was America. It's happened, folks. China is sending missionaries to America to see us saved. South Korea is sending missionaries to America to see Americans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we need it here. But we need to be part of it here as well. Let's not forget, as we study through Revelation and take in all these things, as we receive revelation of Jesus Christ, that revelation ought to be the ultimate motivation for us to tell people about Jesus. To share the Gospel We have a sending God. We are called to be the Philadelphian church of the open door. And being called as such, we are those who walk through the open door. We don't just go, hey, that's a nice open door. Isn't it great to be part of a church of an open door? As we snooze away like Sardis. We are called to go. Called to go. And I know when I say that, some sit here and they think, I'm not the going type. I'm a stay-home Saturday night type. I'm not, I'm not verbal. I don't know enough. I, 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 you know, I'll show up at church. I mean, I want to be there, but I, I'm, not, I'm not a goer. I'm not an evan- I don't have the gift of evangelism. Brothers and sisters, you don't need the gift of evangelism to tell someone about Jesus. The gift of evangelism just makes you a little more nutty about it. <laughs> And I mean that in a really good way. It gives you a passion and a drive and you just can't shut up. And you know those people. They're the ones you're with them out at dinner and the waitress comes up and they start preaching the gospel and you're just going, (laughs) I'm so glad I'm part of Philadelphia. (laughs) 
We are called to go. To be sent. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, listen again, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, says the one with all authority. Do you accept his authority? The authority of Jesus Christ? Then I, then you, then we have no alternative but to go with the name of Jesus. Wherever we go, and that's a good interpretation of Matthew 28, as you go, make disciples. As you go out your front door, make disciples. As you go to the store, make disciples. As you go to the haircut, make disciples. As you go to your friends' homes, as you share time with family, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which is good because sometimes I can get low. When you're low, He's with you. He's still there in your tribulations. But Jesus said, John 20, verse 21, Peace with you as the Father sent Me, I also send you. Now, this is amazing to me because even after the church is caught up and for all of our evangelistic campaigns and our Harvest Crusades and our Billy Graham Crusades and all that the church has done over 2,000 years, God is not finished. It's not over. There is still a hope and it begins with 144,000 sealed Jewish bondservants who now He sends out to the nations even as tribulation begins to break loose on the earth. God is still saying, repent and be saved. Trust Jesus and be saved. And there will be 144,000 voices. And by the way, a saved Jew is one of the best people to bring the Gospel because they know Him the longest. Having been the chosen people, finding their reality, the Hebrew Scriptures through the New Testament, and these 144,000 will be powerful, I believe powerful witnesses of the Gospel, declaring the glory of God in the name of Jesus among all the nations. And they're sealed for the job. Sealed. The seal here is... Prophetic, As we already saw, Isaiah 66. I'm going to put a token on them and send them to the nations. But the seal is also historic for Israel. This is not the first and only time that God has sealed His special servants. Flip back to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. And check this out. Ah. It's like the sound of many waters. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 1 then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice Ezekiel the prophet writes draw near O executioners the word there is also maybe better translated O overseers of the city the city is Jerusalem each with his destroying weapon in his hand behold Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them, there was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins or at his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So now they're in the holy, well, in front of the holy place in the inner court of the temple. 
And then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been, that is above the Ark of the Covenant, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins or side was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go, through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, that is the six men, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, and do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Skip down to verse 11. Then behold, the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case reported, I have done all as you have commanded me. Who are these seven? Six called to slay, one called to save. The first six carrying with them shattering weapons or literally instruments of slaughter. Well, I can tell you the first six will likely be seen in the world again. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 tells us the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But who is the seventh man here? The seventh man clothed in linen with a, a writing case, literally with an inkhorn, there at His side... I think it's Jesus. Why would you think that? Well, because this man seals the saved. Sets God's seal on the foreheads of those who sigh, of those who groan. That is, of those who love the Lord and hate what they see going on. And he goes out sealing the saved. By the way, this mark that he places on their foreheads is in and of itself interesting. If you were reading this in Hebrew, all you would see is go, verse 4, through the midst of the city and through the midst of Jerusalem and put a tav on the forehead of the men who sigh and groan. Tav. It's a single letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tav. The tav. And the ancient symbol for the top it's actually changed today but if you go back 2,000 years if you go back 2,700 years you see the top was actually a cross go put the sign of the cross on the foreheads of the saved I think that the indication is that Jesus is marking the saved in Jerusalem at that time And while the the seal or or the mark of Isaiah 66, that token, or Ezekiel 9, this mark, or even Revelation 7, the seal, it's not about, it is not for the church. What it does remind us is this, God sets His seal on people He saves. God seals the saved. God marks those who are His own. But hold that thought and jump back to Revelation chapter 7. 
Oh, Rick, there, there's stuff in Ezekiel 9 that bugs me. Good, study it this week and, and think, think it through on your own. Revelation chapter 7. Among these sealed servants, again, let me name them for you. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Shimon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. You go through these tribes. It's interesting because someone's missing. Someone's not there. Those of you who have studied this before, shh. Someone is not represented. Now, Ephraim's name is not there. Ephraim. Don't worry. Joseph is listed, and Ephraim is son of Joseph. So Ephraim is well represented. And we can talk about why is Ephraim not there. Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Manasseh's here, Ephraim's not. That's, that's an interesting conversation. But there's representation there that if the tribe of Joseph is sealed, then we know Ephraim is sealed, or at least some number of Ephraim are sealed. So they're okay. But who else is blatantly missing from the 144,000 sealed? And it is the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. Everybody else gets a minimum of 12,000 from the tribe sealed, secured by this seal of God, but not Dan. Why not Dan? What's wrong with Dan? Why are they left out? And of course, the critic would say, well, you know, it's just a, a, John just wasn't thinking clearly enough when he made all this stuff up. Listen, back in Deuteronomy 29, I encourage you to read this in your own time, about verse 18 through 25 or so, right in there. God made a covenant. He, he made a long, large, important covenant with Israel. And at this point, he was talking about blessings and curses. And in Deuteronomy 29, he made this very specific covenant with all 12 tribes that if any tribe embraced idolatry, especially to the point of excluding themselves from a relationship with the true God, God would exclude them from Israel. Didn't all the tribes of Israel embrace idolatry? Yes. And while this doesn't make it any better, for all the tribes of Israel, it was the idol and God. It was embracing idolatry with faith in God. That They just kind of thought they'd support their faith in God. He's our true God, but we're also going to worship the Baals. Just we we got to cover all our bases. And that was the thinking. And so it was mixture faith of believing in God and the idol... All except one tribe, Dan. Dan became the poster tribe of Israelite idolatry to the point of excluding faith in God completely, which at that point, in keeping His covenant, God would have to exclude Dan from the people. First thing Dan did was they rejected their inheritance. They were given a beautiful, secure Allotment of land right on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. In fact, today, people journey there for vacation. It's Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv down to Joppa or Yafo today. That stretch of beach, that was Dan's territory. And Dan was safely sandwiched there between Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south and Benjamin to the east. So they were completely ensconced in Israel, protected from any outside predator or attacker. 
Anyone who would come against Israel, Dan was in a secure, probably the most secure location. But they didn't like it. They didn't want it. I hope that's not you when God gives that you say, I'm just not happy with this. I'm not content with what God has given me in my life. I really want what he has or what she has or what they have. Dan didn't like their allotment of land. They decided they needed somewhere else. They didn't want to be all squished in between all the other tribes. Let's move out and spread our wings. Let's go north. So they sent some spies up to the north to spy out the land. The spies found at the far north of Israel a group of people, peaceful, quiet, harmless, the people of Laish. And so Dan begins to, well, the spies come back. We can take them. Well, yeah, you're an entire tribe and you're warriors and you've been fighting battles. Of course you can take them. Well, they all head up. On their way up there, they stop off and they pick up their own private priest and his idols, his little teraphim household idols, and they head on up there and they completely decimate the peaceful people of Laish. Kill them all. Wipe them out. And they settle there and found the tribe of Dan. Now, if you look on a Bible map in the back of your Bibles today, you'll note the territory allotted to Dan is exactly what I said. It's down there on the Mediterranean coast. But you'll also note at the very top of Israel, there is the city of Dan. What's the deal? Dan rejected their allotment and went up and settled their city in the north. You know what happened? From there... When the nation divided into two, north and south, Jeroboam to the north and Rehoboam to the south, the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel, when it began to fall to powerful Assyria, Dan was the first tribe taken. First one to go down. The first one left unprotected. Jeroboam set up two golden calves for the people to worship. One in Bethel, in the south, and one in Dan, in the north. When we travel to Israel, we, also, we always visit the remains of the city of Dan. It's remarkable. And as you travel in there, you come to a certain location, and there is an altar there, a pagan altar in the midst of the city of Dan, on which at one time stood the golden calf. golden calf's not there, but the stone altar is. You know what they found around the stone altar? Scorched animal and human bones. Human sacrifice to the pagan gods that Dan ascribed to. The altar in Dan. Dan went all in for pagan worship. And when Assyria again destroyed Israel in 722 B.C., Dan was the first tribe out. There's even an old pagan oath linked to the tribe of Dan. Amos chapter 8, verse 14. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. That was the saying. As your God lives, O Dan. Dan's God was not God. Dan's God was not Yahweh. As your God lives, O Dan referred to their pagan belief. What was the source of Dan's descent into idolatry? And I've said this many times. In fact, this is the teaching we, we go through when we're in Israel. It's discontent. Dan begins discontented with what God had given them, and that is always the root of idolatry. Always. 
It still is today. Whenever I'm discontent with the life that God has given me, I run the risk of idolatry and anxiety. Both. I don't want what God's given me. I'm not happy with where God has placed me. I don't like the family He's surrounded me with or the friends He's given me. I don't want this world. And Paul described that mentality in 1 Timothy 6 verse 5 as constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul says, well, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Contentment. Godliness without contentment is idolatry. Because godliness without contentment is looking to the idol to fulfill your wishes rather than being content with what God has given. With the life that God has placed before you. And so some think that Dan is excluded from the 144,000 because of this. Because of their idolatry, because they excluded God, therefore God excludes them in the ceiling of the 144,000? And I think that's possible. But I think there's a more intriguing suggestion. And that is this. Several ancient rabbis taught and believed that a false Messiah would someday rise from Dan. That Dan would be the source of a false prophet, a false Messiah. Where do they get that? Genesis 49, verse 17. When old Jacob is blessing the twelve sons, and he comes to Dan, and he says this, listen, Dan shall be a serpent in the way. A horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. But for your salvation I wait Oh Lord, can you imagine being Jacob and blessing your son that way? As Jacob was blessing his twelve sons, and all the blessings are prophetic. Genesis 49 is amazing prophecy. He's lying there on his bed and he's putting his hand, Bless, bless, bless. Dan is a serpent. Dan, you old snake. You're going to bite. I'm waiting for the salvation of the Lord because Dan is a snake. <laughs> Listen to the prophecy that Daniel gives about the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, which reads, Antichrist, he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. That is a Jewish phrase, my friends. The God of his fathers, that's what the Jewish people refer to God, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my fathers. That is a Jewish phrase. That's not a pagan phrase. And Daniel says of Antichrist that he will show no regard for the God of his fathers, implying that perhaps Antichrist comes of Jewish blood. Maybe from Dan. It's possible. Daniel 11.37 also says of Antichrist he will show no regard for or desire for women. Perhaps implying that Antichrist is homosexual. Nor will he show regard for any God, for he will magnify himself above all. He won't be idolatrous. He he will be, what's the word for for making yourself your own idol? That's Antichrist. And so you read that and you put it together and wonder, is it possible Antichrist himself will in fact have roots in Dan with Jewish blood? 
How could he? How, how, how could he hate Israel as we will see and have Jewish blood? Well, Hitler did. Hitler had Jewish blood and yet sought the mass extermination of the Jewish people. Either way, whether it's idolatry or antichrist or both, Dan is among the only, among all the tribes, he is the only one not sealed in the 144,000. Now, I took some time to point that out for this reason. Christians, listen up. Have you ever felt like you've gone too far for God? That perhaps you've excluded Him so much in your life that He has no choice but to exclude you. That because you've pushed Him away, therefore He must have to push you away. Have you ever looked at God and measured Him the way you would measure your own self or your own behavior? And so perhaps you're in a place where you fear that God may really exclude you from salvation and from eternal security. What's wonderful about the story of Dan is the prophet Ezekiel has the distinction of recording the new allotments of land inheritance that is in the millennial kingdom to the tribes of Israel and the first tribe on the list receiving an allotment of land is the tribe of Dan. Ezekiel 48 verse 1. These are the names of the tribes from the northern extremity beside the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamat, as far as Hazar Inan to the border of Damascus toward the north beside Hamat, running from east to west, Dan. And when you see the allotments of land lined up in Ezekiel 48 to all the twelve tribes, Dan is right there, receiving their inheritance. Which tells us that even though Dan is excluded here among the 144,000, Dan is restored in the kingdom. Dan has an inheritance. Dan still has a place among the people, but it's not because of Dan. And Christian brothers and sisters, hear me on this. It is not because of Dan. It is because of the grace of God that Dan will have an inheritance. It is not because of you, it is because of God that you are saved. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His grace is your hope, not your behavior, not your work, not your successes. Or your failures. Your only hope, your one hope, is the grace of God. I was asked a question uh, on Friday night. I was heading out and Joel grabbed me and, and it connected. We're going to talk about this. That Someone was saying, which of the Jewish laws are we supposed to obey and which are the ones that we don't? And what applies to me and what doesn't? And, and I looked at Joel and he said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, well, the first answer is, <laughs> we're not under law. Period. Now, there are laws within the Jewish law that I believe are keepable, I would say should be kept by followers of Jesus, because they're good to do. But not to save yourself. You don't track the Ten Commandments so you can stand up before Jesus on Judgment Day and go, let's go through the list because I think I covered them. Chances are, you didn't. No, we don't keep law to be saved. We're saved and therefore we want to be righteous. That's the whole point. 
It is grace. It is grace. It is grace. Les, have I covered that securely enough, do you think? It is grace. It is grace. Do you hear me? It is by grace you have been saved. And you may be in the middle of tribulation. It is by grace you have been saved and will not go into the tribulation. By faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a a Jewish friend of mine once said to me, in fact, I've heard this from two different Jewish friends, this exact same thing is kind of funny. But this one man was specifically talking about Christians who are wannabe Jews. You know the ones. They find out about Passover and they get really excited, so they start keeping Passover. And and they find out about the other feasts, and, and, and the feasts are amazing. And interesting, and I don't have a problem. If someone wants to do a, a Passover Seder at their home, go for it. It's instructive and interesting. You want to keep Hanukkah? Hey, eight days of gifts instead of one? I'm all for it. <laughs> but those who, who start to get into this mindset that you've got to be Jewish in keeping of law and in behavior, and you're not even a Jew, you're a Gentile. And this Jewish friend of mine once said, I don't know why anyone would want to be Jewish. <laughs> This is from one who was born and raised that way. Can I add something to that? I don't know why anyone would want to claim that they are the 144,000. You know why? Because they're in tribulation. The 144,000 go into the tribulation. Do you want to be part of that? Jehovah's Witness who says, I'm part of the 144,000. You're going into tribulation. Why would you want that? That doesn't make sense. And trust me, the 144,000 Mormon gods are not going to be making jello. Sorry, that was weird. I don't know why it popped into my head. The 144,000. Now listen, I'm almost done. Listen. They're sealed. Yes. They're protected. Absolutely. Secured. But... They will go through and must endure the most terrifying, tumultuous time in Earth's entire history. They got to go through it. They will be in it. But watch this. Their seals, their seals will remain unbroken throughout. That is, every last one of the 144,000 is going to make it. We know this because Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with Him, 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. So we know what the seal is now. It's Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh. And I heard from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and like the sound which I heard that was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who, who had been purchased from the earth. And I love that because we all have songs. The song book in heaven is going to be huge. There's going to be the song of the 144,000. There's the song of Moses. There's the song of the Lamb. There's the song of the redeemed. And we're going to have all this beautiful music. But the 144,000 are there. Where? In Jerusalem. Mount Zion. In Jerusalem. They have made it out of the tribulation. They have gone up to Jerusalem. 
And they are standing there with the Lamb in Revelation 14. And note this, it is not the 120,000 or the 137,000 or the 143,999. The entire 144,000 are there. They are what I would call the unbroken sealed. And they are unbroken sealed through the tribulation. The only seals that we see broken in the tribulation are the seals on the scroll. As Jesus breaks the first six and is about to break the seventh. Those are the only seals that are broken. Remember that. Note that. No one else is worthy to break those seals but the little lamb slain. And as he breaks the seals, it's as though he's breaking chains. As he's breaking free the world that is now in bondage. They come snapping off of that scroll. Broken seal, broken seal, broken seal. But listen to this. Isaiah 42 verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Do you hear what I'm saying? He breaks seals, unleashing punishment and wrath but Jesus Christ will not break the sealed. Those sealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If He will not break the sealed bondservants in the tribulation, He will not break those who are sealed in their tribulations. And that's really my point. If you believe in Jesus, simple faith, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And if you are sealed, He will not break you in tribulations. And this is the thing that Christians have got to understand. I've had too many conversations with Christians in despair feeling like they have been shattered and broken. He will not break you in your tribulations. I am not downplaying some of the pain that people feel. I am not saying that there isn't hardship in this life for followers of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that your world won't completely seem to have fallen apart. What I'm saying is He will not break the sealed. How do I know if I'm sealed? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, no matter what's going on in your life, you are sealed and He will not break you. He will not break you. I read this last week. I was led to, I saw a website that is specifically for Christians who want to commit suicide. 
And I, I saw that and it broke my heart because what that tells me is there are believers in Jesus Christ who really think they've been broken to the point of no repair. And it's not true. It's not true. He will not break you in tribulation. He may take you through tribulations. He may make you in tribulation into what you ought to be. But He's not going to break you. Understand, we have an unbroken seal even when life seems to be at its absolute worst. He's not letting go. He's not giving up. Everybody else may. He will not. So what do I do when I'm in the worst of tribulations in my life? You look to Jesus. You cry out to Jesus. You cling to Jesus. You hope in Jesus. Who said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Oh Jesus. First of all, Lord, forgive me when I complain. Forgive me when I grumble. Forgive me when I disdain the life and the position and even the situation that I'm in. Forgive me when I whine and moan. And replace all that, Lord Jesus, with hope. Based, Lord, in faith, in the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, there may be among us right here this morning those who feel broken to the point of completely giving up. It's a lie. Father, the enemy is the great deceiver. He is a liar and the father of lies. And I know that He is trying to say, even to believers in this world, you're not saved, you're not good enough, you're not worth it. And these are all lies. Because Your Word tells us that as with the 144,000 in the tribulation, that You seal us. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray for those who are suffering and those who are hurting and those who are sorrowful. I pray for those whose tribulations seem to be so great they don't see a way through or around. And I ask, Holy Spirit of the living God, would You, with a rush like a fresh wind, Lord, like the four winds, would You blow out fear and doubt shame and sorrow? And replace it with the hope that You give us in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, You were so clear. In Me, You said, we might have peace. And so once again, we come to You, Jesus. And whether it's someone who is like the tribe of Dan who feels like they've just blown it too much, would You point to the inheritance? If it's someone, Father, who has fallen to idolatry, would You remind us of our eternity with You? And Father, I pray comfort. Oh, comfort Your people in this day and age. And encourage. Because Lord, the truth is when we come through tribulation with You, our witness is stronger. Our testimony of Jesus is far greater.
And we, like the 144,000, can then go and speak the name of Jesus and the glory of the Gospel. Oh, Jesus, fix our eyes on You, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.